Well, good morning. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, and we're going to continue working through the I Am statements of Jesus uh, within the Gospel account of John. Uh, As you remember, if you were here, uh, we preached through the bread of life. I am the bread of life, chapter 6. I am the light of the world, chapter 8. I am the gate and the good shepherd, chapter 10. And today we're going to look at I am the resurrection and the life. And, and, And as you see John crafting his gospel account, there's greater revelation. There's a continued greater revelation of the person and work of Christ. And then today there's an explosion, a vivid, very vivid revelation of who is Jesus and what is he here to do. And that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. In fact, this miracle was one of the last straws that turned the Jews fiercely against Jesus, that is, the leader of the leaders of the Jews. Uh, if you notice in chapter 10, verse 31, they were ready to stone him um, because of his language about his oneness with the Father, God the Father. And then after the raising of Lazarus, uh, later in chapter 11, we won't cover this, but the chief priests and the Pharisees began plotting to kill him. And that's in verses 45 through 57 of chapter 11. A couple of key questions I want to throw out to you this morning before we dive in. What is wrong with the world? Will it ever be fixed? If so, how? And who? These are questions I often... uh, use in, in, in trying to invigorate evangelistic conversations or actually get into the conversation with folks who may be skeptical or, or uh, on the fringes of the faith looking and peering in. Those are metaphysical questions that we all have to answer. Everyone in the world has the answer. What, what is wrong with the world? Would you agree there's something wrong? If so, will there be a solution? And how? We'll pick up reading at verse 17, but before that, I want to notice that earlier in chapter 11, Jesus was informed of his close friend Lazarus' severe illness and impending death. Jesus states in verse 4 that God would be glorified in this dire situation. And this is somewhat enigmatic to the people surrounding him. They didn't know fully what that meant. So he waited two days in verse 6, and before traveling to Bethany... And then on the way, Jesus states in verse 14 and 15 that it is for the bolstering of their faith. Everyone surrounding him, everyone that will be there, is for the bolstering of their faith that all this is happening. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already, already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. 
And when he had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you have always heard me. But I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud, loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, hear us now. We need light and heat from your word. Holy Spirit, come and descend on us and teach us, oh, great teacher. Spotlight the beauty and glory of Christ. Help us to see this in your word and to be enamored by him and to be moved to greater heights of worship. Oh, Lord, help us. We are weak and feeble and in need. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. And we pray this all together in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen. Legend has it that when the victorious generals of the Roman Empire, when they came back from their conquest, from their victories, they would often have parades, uh, victorious parades, parties, as it were, in the streets. And these generals would come in on their chariots, riding for the fanfare, for the lauding and the praise and the glory of his victorious victory. But often what would happen as well, was there'd be a slave standing in the chariot with him, holding this laurel crown over his head as a sign of victory. But what was astonishing, very periodically, he would whisper into the general's ear, Memento Mori. Memento mori. You Latin students, do you know what that means? Remember, thou shalt die. Remember, thou shalt die. And it was a sobering reminder to this general, you're not a god. You're a mortal man. You will die too. And it brought a realistic outlook to even that general who was riding in 
on the heights of victory. It brought him down to reality, knowing, yes, I too will die. Death has infiltrated God's good creation. It has damaged the shalom that embodied the original creation. Death has torn people apart unexpectedly, plunged many into sorrow, given rise and fall to nations, and brought about much division and heartache. Here in our passage, death intruded even in Jesus' closest circle of friends. We have all faced death, whether it's the death of a friend, a close family member, or even we may have brushed very close with tragedy. Some of you have stared death in the face through terrible illness or an unexpected diagnosis. In fact, we all stare death in the face. Death is impending. It is our terminus unless Jesus returns before our death. Memento Mori is a clarion call for all of us to live realistically. Death is the last enemy to be defeated, yet because of Christ, our conquering king, death will die. Let's say that again. Because of Christ, our conquering king, death will die. And here's the main idea. That's part of it. Jesus Christ has defeated death on our behalf. He has defeated death on our behalf. Therefore, death is not a dungeon of darkness, but a doorway to true life. We're called to belief in Christ alone and rest in his victory. Death is not the end for the Christian. It is the beginning of life to come. I'm going to see this in this passage. We'll look at two things, two points. First, the person of Christ. I want to look at his person. I want to commend to you this, Christ is a compassionate warrior. So we want to see his person. Secondly, we want to see his power. He's a conquering king. So his person and his power. Compassionate warrior, conquering king. First, let's look at his person. If you haven't already noticed, our Lord's kind patience. Did you notice? And there's four acts within this whole scene of what's happening with Lazarus and his sisters Jesus is patient in his conversations with his disciples in verses 1 through 16. He engages with them. Even though he's speaking somewhat over their heads, they don't quite discern what he's saying, what's impending. He has a conversation with Martha in 17 through 27, and with Mary in 28 through 37, then back again with Martha in 38 through 40. And Jesus continually, patiently engages, pulling them toward more faith pulling them towards seeing the glory of God. Notice also John makes note that our Lord is motivated by deep, sincere love for Lazarus and his sisters. Did you see it? Well, we didn't read that. Verse 3, it says, He whom you love is ill. He whom you love is ill. And in verse 36, the Jews remarked, See how he loved him. See how he loved him. Indeed, love and compassion is the heartbeat of our Savior. Account after account after account in all the Gospels show our Savior reaching down to those who are downtrodden, outcast, healing them, bringing them back to shalom, bringing them back to flourishing. He was a man of compassion, deep compassion. Then there's this oft-observed and precious statement in verse 35. Jesus wept. It's actually the shortest verse in the Bible, and it's rightly so very popular. Jesus wept. 
Well, why did he weep? What is, what is the, the, the root of his weeping? I want to examine that and zoom in a little bit. Why did Jesus weep? Well, he was fully man. So he grieved the loss of his friend to some degree. I also believe he was grieved by the heartache of Martha and Mary, who were friends as well. So there was a deep grief there. In short, Jesus was a man of sincere love. He, he had a love for Lazarus, and there was a, a grief there. But I think there's more. It gets better. I want to zoom in on a couple of verses and words that spotlight the glory and beauty of Christ as a compassionate warrior. In verse 32, Mary ran to Jesus, weeping and falling at his feet. And she actually states the the same phrase that Martha said in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And and I take that as a statement of faith. They had seen Jesus heal all kinds of people. Even the Jews stated that. They've heard reports of him calming the, the raging seas, of feeding the thousands. And so this statement of faith by both sisters is, if, if you would have been here, he would have lived. You would have, you would have healed him. I'm going to read verse 33 once again. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled. Right here, where it says deeply moved. This Greek verb, embrymaiomai, it's a very rare New Testament verb. And it's difficult to bring across in our English language. It's very difficult. So we have a, a, a kind of a, a gloss of deeply moved. There's something deep-rooted going on within Jesus. What was that? Well, it leans in the direction of anger and indignation, surprisingly. In fact, the root of this word is that of a warhorse snorting. Uh, those of you who have ever been uh, hunting or hunt regularly, if, if you're walking through the woods and all of a sudden you jump a deer, uh, what do they do? They often snort, and they'll keep doing it. Or if you're a cattleman, you have a very mean bull, and you get in his way or in his domain, what does he do? He does the same. Or if you've seen kids, you've seen the movie Ferdinand, you've seen the mean bulls, what they do? They snort. They are, they are ready to avenge their foes. This is what Jesus is feeling at the moment. This verb actually is used again in verse 38. It says he's deeply troubled again. Greatly moved. Deeply moved. Some translations that are a little bit older say indignant. But why? Why is Jesus, this man of love, this man of compassion, why is he indignant? Why is he angry? How, how can compassion and anger dwell together? I want to look at that. I think it's very beautiful. Is Jesus angry at Mary and Martha? I think not. Is he angry of the unbelief of the Jews that have come from Jerusalem? Perhaps, maybe. Maybe that's a shade of what's going on within Jesus. But even more so, I believe that Jesus, Jesus, just think about this, the Lord of glory, the one who created all things, and in him all things exist, 
The one who said, let there be light, and there was light. The one who, who created all the animals and the human beings. He's standing and he's staring death in the face. Not only the death of Lazarus, but it is symbolic of the death that has intruded his good creation. And he is indignant. A righteous anger is in, within him. As he knows that is the foe. Death is the foe. And he's standing there filled Filled with fury. It's difficult for us to imagine such pure, righteous anger, right? Because we, we're all fallen human beings. It's hard to see that. We don't see it. But we see it here with Jesus. I want to commend to you, uh, one of my favorite theologians is B.B. Warfield. He's a Princeton theologian. He wrote a book called The Personal Work of Christ. Chapter 2 is called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. It is worth mountains of gold, and I commend it to you. It, it is absolutely astonishing. He goes through and examines all these, these uh, Greek terms that display the emotions of our Lord. Listen to Warfield as he quotes about this. He goes on about what is happening with Jesus and the root of Jesus' reaction. He says this, quote, in Mary's grief, he contemplates the general misery of the whole human race and burns with rage against the oppressor of man. Inextinguishable fury seizes upon him. His whole being is discomposed and perturbed at his heart. If not, his lips cries out, For the innumerable dead is my soul disquieted. John Calvin states this, Christ does not approach the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contest. And therefore, we need not wonder that he again groans for the violent tyranny of death which he had to conquer is placed before his very eyes. Essentially, what's that saying? It's saying that death is right there. The enemy is right there. And Christ, the Lord of glory, is standing in the face of death. What will he do? He is moved, not only inwardly, but he's moved to action. In fact, if he were unmoved... I would venture to say he would not be displaying the holiness of God. There is a m deep movement there. The zeal of the Lord is at work. This is why Psalm 97.10 says, You who love the Lord hate evil. We are to spurn evil, to hate it, to want it pushed back, to want it removed from our hearts and from the, the entire cosmos. And that's what Jesus will do when he returns. Here's the point. For all of us today, you have a Savior who's a fierce warrior. You have a Savior who has fought for you. Who has fought against death and won for you and me. Who did not sit back idly or apathetically watching all the human race plunged into sin and death and do nothing. He came as a man. And not only that, he came as a man to die. The death on the cross, the death that we deserve. He lived the life we could not live and he conquered sin and death and the grave. No, we do not have a God who sat back idly, indifferent, apathetic. He is very active. Christ came to fight for us. He came to take death to task, to take evil to task. And he is the conqueror over all death. Amen? Yes! 
Yes, we should say, Amen, hallelujah, Christ has conquered death. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. We must see Him. This moves us to our second point. We see His heart. We see what moves Him. What even moved Him to the cross. Not only right here with Lazarus, but, but He kept moving face like flint to Jerusalem. Didn't stop. He knew what was coming. So Jesus here, we see the power of Christ in our second point. Jesus strides up to the tomb. He commands a stone to be removed. In verse 39, Martha objects because, you know, the body is going to stink, Lord. Why, why are we doing this? What, what's happening? What are you doing? It's already four days, and, and that's a major point, four days. It's already been noted in verse 17. Why is this important? Well, there was a, a teaching at that time by some of the rabbis that would say when, when someone dies, the soul would go up and hover uh, for three days over the body, and then, and then just to make sure, and then, and then when the body started decomposing, it went to its rightful place. And that was one of the teachings of rabbis at that time. So I believe just to prove the vivid point of God's sheer power, that this is not magic. God the Father had Christ to wait till that time so that there would be much glory, so that God would be glorified in every way. There would be no mistake. This is the power of God through His Messiah. Thus, in verse 40, Jesus reiterates that whoever believes in him will see the glory of God. And after praying intimately with the Father, I love his prayer. It's so intimate and clear and audible. Jesus stood in front of the tomb, and, and it, he, doesn't, he doesn't say it quietly. He says it he, he, it's a loud cry. In, in our vernacular, it was a yell. Lazarus, come forth or come out. Lazarus, come out. And guess what happened? He came out. He came out. Jesus is the King of kings and all power resides in Him. He has the power of life. In Him was the light of men and the life, John said in chapter 1. power of all power was on display and in dramatic fashion. Jesus, the King of all kings, calls his friend Lazarus out of the darkness and back to life. Now we know that Lazarus would, would eventually die. But in this moment, a dead man comes to life, which is remarkable. But here, Jesus is, there's something more. There's more for us that we should know. So let's go back to verses 21 through 27. Back to where Martha and Jesus is talking. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would have not died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Martha, with this beautiful statement of faith, which we should remember her by, said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ. You are the Son of God who is coming into the world. Three fantastic statements of faith. Beautiful. But what's the point? What is Jesus saying? 
Clearly, Martha believed in the future resurrection, as did the Pharisees and Jesus and many in that day, that all people will be raised to life in the end, on the last day. But here Jesus is intimating so much more. He doesn't say, I am the cause of the resurrection. He doesn't say, I will call forth the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. It is substantially different and loaded that there is life in him. It's not that you just believe in Jesus and stamp a ticket for eternal life, for resurrection life to come. You believe in Jesus and you get resurrection life when you believe. He is in you and you're in him. It's essentially this, there is something even more powerful happening that Martha could not understand. Jesus is indicating that the kingdom of God has broken into time and space and matter. And that's why he often said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Or at other times he said, the kingdom of God is among you. Because the very essence of the kingdom was standing, feet planted on dusty ground, wearing sandals. The man called Jesus the God-man. I encourage us this morning, when you place your faith in Christ, you are resurrected from the tyranny of sin already. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3.1, you have been raised with Christ And then Paul goes on in verse 3 to say, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What an amazing statement. Your your life is hidden with Christ in God. In fact, John and or Jesus, as he was praying the high priestly prayer, John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, and the one whom you've sent. Again, eternal life is now, begins now, faith forward, power now, but not yet fully why we often talk about the now but not yet there's a lot that's realized but it's not yet realized fully we have more to come i'm going to say it this way we have the first fruits of resurrection power but when jesus comes back we'll have a a vast endless orchard of fruit of resurrection power it will be beautiful and jesus will come back expunge evil from this earth and usher in the shalom that we all long for that we know we need And it will be bodily. We will have this be raised in our bodies. And this earth will be much more beautiful than the first creation. That is what we have. That is the hope that we have. And this is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter chapter 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Guess what that cry of command is going to be? I think it might be, Come out! Come forth! And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And Paul says, encourage one another with these words. My friends, this morning, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, you have hope. You have a king who is powerful, he is compassionate, and he is fierce at loving you. He has died to defeat death. And when he rose again, that was the first step of the new creation. And if you are believing in him, you are in that new creation. You are moving toward a greater new creation that he will bring back once and for all. That is our hope. Death is not the end. 
Yes, memento mori, but also memento resurgence. Meaning, death is coming, but you shall rise because Christ is risen. Because in him is all the power in the cosmos. That is our Lord. That is our King. Believe in him. If you don't believe in him this morning, trust him. Put your faith in him. And you will have resurrection life. And you will have joy and abundant life now and in eternity. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are magnificent. You are beautiful. Show us more of your glory. That's what we need. That's what we want. We want you, not just your gifts. We want you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, God, that you love us fiercely. Lord Jesus, you rule and defend us with love, and you conquer all yours and all our enemies, and we praise you. Draw us near. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.